This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Good evening. Welcome to Alliance Bible Church. Glad that you're with us uh, for this night. Um, it's a special treat for us to be able to uh, host this weekend uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan and his father Leon and uh, mother Angela. Um, it, it was interesting kind of how this, this came about. Uh, I actually had, had brought Dr. Yuan into my previous church to do this similar thing, and, and it was a Saturday night probably three months ago. I was pouring over my sermon notes for the the next morning, I got a text, and it was from <laughs> it was from uh, Christopher, and uh, he was wanting to know if I was still in Appleton. We don't keep in touch, you know. So, uh, and uh, we had a nice exchange of texts. I said, "Hey, Mequon's a lot closer than Appleton." So we're glad that you're here for this. And just a reminder to you, uh, they're going to be with us tomorrow during both services, and uh, they're going to be sharing their family story, and it's a riveting one. Uh, so you won't want to miss that. Two services, 9 and 1045, and we're excited about that. Tonight, uh, the rest of this time is going to be um, up to Christopher and how he wants to do this, but I know towards the end of his presentation, as he talks through this, he's going to uh, open up a time for Q&A. And uh, so be thinking about that. As you listen, as you take in, as you process, if there's anything that you want to ask, uh, you'll have opportunity to do that. Uh, let's uh, give a warm welcome here to Dr. Christopher Yuan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, you are the Lord of light, and when in you there is no shadow of turning. And Lord, we know how important it is when we address things of the heart, Lord, things that are so relevant to our world today, not just here in Wisconsin, not just here in the Midwest, not even in our own country, but Lord, it's something that um, seems this whole world is wrestling with, and it's the issue of sexuality. Lord, help us to address this with truth, with grace, grounded in your gospel. We love you, God, and we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, and the people of God said amen. We live seemingly in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. <laughs> Sexual freedom has become the religion of the land. The deception of our day is this. Your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. We see that since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, that the human heart has set itself in defiance with God's perfect ways. As a matter of fact, I believe that the gospel is on a collision course with the idolatry of sexual identity. And I know I'm kind of giving all these things and it might seem like, oh my goodness, we're headed in the wrong direction, and what are we going to do? And as horrendous, as shocking as this sounds, before we put on our battle gear and do battle with and fight with and do war with those people that 
are incorrect, let us realize that there's actually a much more important battle that, that's going on, and it's the battle for lost souls. The battle for those that God so dearly loves. And the reality is, I totally relate with all of that. I completely embrace it. That was my world. You see, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My parents didn't raise me going to, the, going to church. We didn't go to Iwana. We didn't even own a Bible. But my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. I can distill that to three. I know, so cute. <laughs> it was all downhill from there. <laughs> you see, um, I didn't, wasn't raised in a Christian home. But my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values that I can distill to three things. Obey your parents. Good, right? Do well in school. Good. And practice piano. <laughs> you see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked at different. I acted different. And I had different interests. I had this secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. So I broke the news to my parents, and interestingly enough, God used that crisis to bring that, them to faith. Come back tomorrow, you will hear personally from my mom, from my dad, their journey, amazing journey of faith. Well, I wanted nothing to do with it. I thought, good for you, not for me. Isn't that so very postmodern? Good for you, not for me. Works for you, not for me. Wanted nothing to do with it. I spent most of my free, I, so from Chicago, I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, or as, as they would say, Louisville, Kentucky. Lived in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, and it was there that I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are promiscuous. Some do, some don't. But that certainly is part of my story. And when I tell my story, I have to be honest about that and tell you my whole story. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs. But like my classmates, I didn't have much money. So I decided to support my drug habit by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So I moved to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew above anything else 
that my rebellion against them was not the biggest issue. My sexuality wasn't the biggest issue even. But my biggest need was to know and fully surrender to Christ. So they prayed for that. They, my mother began to, they actually, one time, they even came to visit me, and I told them to get out. And uh, they didn't even give them an opportunity. To, I didn't even give them an opportunity to call up their friends to pick them up. So I, um, you know, it, 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 there in Louisville, after being expelled from dental school, I kicked them out, and my dad wanted to give me something in his very first Bible. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. He left it on my kitchen counter, walked out the door, and as soon as I left, I took my dad's Bible, and I threw it in the trash can. Wanted nothing to do with God. And after that visit, it was more than obvious that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over 100 prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend her mornings, hours, on her knees in her prayer closet, interceding for me, for herself, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta Safety Detention Center. So I tried calling home. And I did not want to make that phone call. But my mother's first words were, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. 
And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone called, if you can believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called them in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says, count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and she, next to the phone was a calculator. She tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. <laughs> and he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And after years, my years in prison, this list is now longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And I passed by this garbage can, and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made, but now I found myself among common criminals, trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. Something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book for the first time. I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God. I wasn't even thinking that this will be the answer to some of my problems. I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. <laughs> but as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion. And it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The nurse sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. So she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than 10 years to life.
but news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed and I look up at the metal bunk above me and I noticed someone had scribbled something and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation Israel to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my dependencies, obviously drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion, and to my surprise, he actually told me that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, and he even gave me a book explaining that view. So I took that book thinking, I'm going to find biblical justification for the way I used to live. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. Can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word, live as a gay man, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality does not have to be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that's true, right? But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, God loves me unconditionally, and then I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. But I realize that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. 
my identity shouldn't be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay, ex-gay, or even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I had thought that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become heterosexual, that somehow the more sexually attracted I were to women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that actually God never, that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. And God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the main goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of any sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm tempted. I will be tempted, just as Jesus was tempted in every way but was without sin. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling because we will struggle. But I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where, where, where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of location. With that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that I needed to learn more about the Bible if I was going to continue on in ministry. So called home, collected my parents, told them I think God's calling me to ministry, and I asked them to mail me an, an application to the only Bible college I, have, I had ever heard of at that time, which is in our hometown Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison, tore it open, began filling it out till I got to the end where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, got my doctorate in ministry from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, and I also had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together, co-authored it. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. She wrote, she wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters. Because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, 
Our book now is in seven different languages. There's a study guide at the back. And then my new book, I'm really excited about this. This is how we reconnected with Pastor Brian. Uh, my new book is called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. I introduced this concept uh, in my first book in 2011, and I just introduced this concept, Holy Sexuality, and we'll talk about this in just a moment. And I knew I really need to flesh that out. And so that's what I did with this book. This book starts out pretty foundational. It's essentially a theology of sexuality. And, and I, sometimes I, I hear people in people's minds, they're like, I don't need more theology, I need more practical tips. Well, let me give you some advice here. Let me give you some, you know, what, what I think is, is very true. Is that sometimes we jump, jump into praxis. Sometimes we jump into practical action points without grounding that in truth. How many of you guys have heard people say, oh, I just need to love? And you look at their love, you're like, that ain't love. And, and, and anyone know what I'm talking about? I mean, like the world, they're like, oh, we just need to love. And I'm like, you're loving in the wrong way. So I don't think the problem today is that we need to be more loving. The problem is, what does your love look like? The world says love is love is love is love, right? They say that. It's not the same. Not all love is equal. There is love that is a wrong way of love. It's not real, true love. I, I'm not saying that a gay couple can't be loving and they can't express uh, love to others, that the gay community can't be loving. I actually, many of my gay friends are very loving people. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying uh, what the correct way of God, there are different ways to love. As a matter of fact, most of the time that the Bible talks about love in the Bible, it's not even a romantic type of love. It's not even love between a husband and wife. So love is always grounded in truth. Think about it. How you love depends on what is the foundation that love is standing on. Love stands on truth. 1 Corinthians 13, love delights in truth, right? We know that chapter. Love is patient, love is kind. And if you look at that chapter, actually, that chapter, which is often read in marriage, uh, in, in, in weddings, that chapter, and we often apply that to how a husband loves his wife and a wife loves their husband. Actually, that chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, was not written in the context of marriage. It's written in the context of the local ch the church, the body of Christ, brothers, sisters, this is how we ought to love one another. Love is patient, love is kind, etc. So this beautiful, unconditional agape love is grounded in truth. So really, we need to then start with truth because if we try to jump in and try to do right, love right, without thinking right, you might be doing wrong. So my book starts with this foundational of, of who we are in Christ and sexuality is not who you are. And I go through, and then, and then the last few chapters, once we've been grounded and have that foundation of, of who we are, what our desires, sexuality, not heterosexuality, holy, but it's ho holy sexuality, having a good understanding of marriage, because I think we've also have a high view of marriage, but then we also have some misunderstandings of marriage. We have a misunderstanding about singleness. And then we jump into some practical things at the end of the book. And so actually... Uh, this talk also is tailored after several portions of my book as well because a true Christian response begins with a proper understanding of 
God and of humanity. Because honestly, I think that we have not, even the church, we have not done a good job at not only engaging on this topic, but ministering to those, sharing Christ with those in the gay community. I mean, if I were to give us a grade, I don't think it would be like an A or B. I don't even know if I would be a C. That's average. I think it'd be, in general, we're, we haven't done a good job. We've missed the mark. We don't think about, you know, what are, what are ways that we can win souls in the gay community for the glory of Christ. And the world sees that. There's a book that's called Unchristian that asked young Americans, what do you think about Christians? Because as it, what they found was Christians, we don't seem very Christian, hence the name of the book, Unchristian. So they asked, they gave a survey to a whole bunch of youth, age 16 to 29. Some were Christian, some were not Christian. They asked some positive things, some negative things, like when you think about the church, what do you think about? By far, it was all negative. Look at this. We are viewed to be, from the bottom, confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and guess what's at the very, very top? Anti-homosexual. Just look at those percentages for a moment. Not raising the church, 91%. This book was published in 2007. I can guarantee you that percentage is even higher now, if it can be. What about our youth? Raise in the church. Go through youth group. We teach them love the sinner, hate the sin, right? According to this survey, somehow they miss that. According to the survey, 8 out of 10. And note, it doesn't say anti-homosexuality. Three letters, I-T-Y, big difference. The survey shows that we are perceived to be against gay people. And that is wrong. The gospel is not against anyone. It's for everyone. It's for everyone turning from their sins, certainly, and turning to Christ, but it's still for people. But somehow that has been lost. Somehow, and, and we need, I mean, how do we do a better job? Because remember, people's perception is their reality. Because you might think, well, I, I'm not that way, and, and I believe that because I haven't really met the Christians that I know aren't this, and yet it doesn't matter. People hear you're a Christian, guess what? You've just been labeled all these things. So how can we do a better job, improve in our approach, sharing Christ? Now, there's many ways that I could have a Christian response to homosexuality. I could approach this looking at what's going on in, in uh, you know, the laws and policy. I can look at kind of approach this more as a sociological issue or maybe a developmental psychological issue. But how about tonight we use as our foundation for a true Christian response to homosexuality the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think that should actually be a great place to start, a great place to start. Um, because actually, I think we should be using the gospel of Jesus Christ for the foundation of everything that we do. So my talk, I'm going to go through, and then we're going to have a time of Q&A. If you would like my notes, I'm, there's going to be um, a lot of stuff 
uh, if, if John remembers, in my classes, I love outlines, and there's going to be, you know, a bunch of stuff here. So if you're interested in my notes, you can kind of scan this QR code, and if by chance you don't get it, I can, I can give it to Pastor Brian, and he can, you, can, you can bother him and uh, get it from him. Uh, scan this QR code. If you're looking from your mobile phone or mobile reader, and it, it will ask you to sign up for Dropbox, you can say, no, thank you, and just view it. It's a PDF file. Uh, and if you don't get this QR, if you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. That's okay. Just jot down the shortened URL and you'll get the same thing. And if you somehow miss it, it should be at the bottom of um, each of my slides. The gospel should be our foundation. That is our truth. Because I really think if any response to homosexuality isn't grounded in the gospel, not simply the good news that saves people, but also the good news that makes them more like Christ, the good news that enables them to be holy every day. That's good news. That is what our foundation needs to be, not just on this issue of homosexuality, but actually on anything related to the human condition. So we're going to start with that four things, and I'm going to center my talk around. And the first thing has to do just with our attitude, our posture. We need to make sure that first thing before we do anything else, before we do this, let's do this. Let's look at ourselves. We need to be convicted about our own sin. When I lived as a gay man many years ago, I felt Christians were telling me that somehow gays and lesbians deserved a hotter place in hell. Like Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for gays and lesbians. Yes, same-sex relationships are sin, but it's not the worst sin. It's not the unpardonable sin, because when I look at God's Word, there's only one unpardonable sin, grieving the Holy Spirit, not homosexuality. But sometimes just the way that we may talk about it or maybe the way that the media conveys or they'll kind of take sound bites from like the worst. You ever notice that like media, they love to like to take the worst example of evangelical world and let's say, let's put that in the news, you know? It's like, that's not me. <laughs> but unfortunately, that is, that's what's going to, you know, make people watch the news more. And so we do have that reputation that somehow this is the worst, worst, worst sin. But I still do know people who believe that, that they think, well, you know, the gay community, they're just ruining our country. Sin is ruining our country. <laughs> Actually, sin is ruining the world. So it's not the worst, it is sin. It's not the worst sin. Oh, but it's an abomination. Yes, you're right. But I'll just be honest with you. I believe the whole Bible. Anyone believe the whole Bible? Like any, everything, like from beginning all the way to end, right? I did it before. I believe the whole Bible, beginning to end. And if you go right about in the middle, Proverbs, you see where in Proverbs 6, where Solomon writes, there are six things the Lord, Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. And you know what he lists? Pride. Dissension. So when was the last time your friend was a little prideful and you said, you are abomination. Maybe we should next time. Just, you know, why not? And if we do, you know what? 
then maybe we wouldn't trivialize sin that really grieves the heart of God. Oh, but I see it all over media and I see it in you know, television and, and, and movies. And, you know, when I go down to like downtown Chicago and I see, you know, all this craziness and, you know, maybe, maybe one time you went at the wrong time during the summer and you got caught like behind like Pride Parade or something. You're like, oh, I did not need to see that. And you're like, look at that. And that's just disgusting. Which, by the way, that's not normal. Just let you know. Okay. I mean, if ever you saw that. And even if, you know, you have people like to, and sometimes it's even these Christian ministries that try to like say, this is what the gay community is like. Not really. That's, it's kind of like people trying to go down to Mardi Gras in Louisiana and, and say, that's what, you know, all Americans are like. Not really. I mean, some are. <laughs> But that's not all. But like I look at that and that's disgusting, they will say. That makes me feel so uncomfortable. I see it on television and I just, I got to turn the channel. And, and I think that that disgust that some might feel or think when they see a gay couple or, or whatever it is or, or the, the topic comes up should really remind us that that feeling, that disgust, is just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at our own sin. And maybe even more. Because we know better and we have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. So our sin, it's not the worst sin, but also our sin is just as odious, just as bad in God's eyes than someone else's sin. I mean, do you notice how easy it is to be disgusted about someone else's sin you know what I mean like oh I can't believe what she's doing I would never do that of course you wouldn't because that's not your sin struggle we don't say the same thing about our own sin we should we don't we like our sin let's just be honest we like our sin you know I mean can you wouldn't it be great if you didn't like your sin you know like like I don't know like Brussels sprouts you know no no that's okay which by the way I, I, I love Brussels sprouts so that that's not a good example for me but imagine if, like, sin didn't feel good. Then it'd be like, no, I mean, it'd be like so easy. You know, I resist that because I don't want that. No, that's not the way sin is, especially your sin, your sin struggle. You like it. We, like it. we go to it when we're tired, when we're, you know, when we're sad or whatever. That's what we go to. It's like, you know, it's, it's just, it's that thing that comforts for the moment. My, my good friend Rosaria Butterfield, she says, if your sin doesn't feel good, you're doing it wrong. It feels good. Let's just be honest. It feels good, but it brings you to death. It brings death. That's the truth. We like our sin, and then we look at someone else and be like, oh my goodness, we're disgusted about theirs. We need to be just as disgusted about our own sin. Sin is just as odious. Let me tell you, at the end of the day, I want to lead people to Christ. But I've never seen that happen by being prideful. I mean, have you ever met anyone who came to Christ through someone else who was prideful? Like, oh, I came to Jesus. She, this older lady, my neighbor, she was so pompous. <laughs> have you? I mean, you know, I mean, no, I've never heard that, ever, not once. It's always, you know, someone who is so patient. You know, I, you know, I was just hard-headed, and she just always there, praying for me nice. 
I'd yell at her and she'd just be nice. Whatever it is, you know the story. I mean, you, you could think of the person in your life right now. It's never the I'm better than you attitude. So let's first, before we do anything else, look at ourselves, be convicted about our own sin, because that leads us to humility. And I think, a humili- I think humility is a fantastic place to start. First, conviction leading to humility. Second, we need to be convicted. Uh, we, need to be, uh, we need to be consistent. And this is consistent in three ways. Consistent regarding relationships. What is your relationship status? Because now, you know, are you married? Are you single? Because we have this imbalance. Marriage is good. But then we say singleness? Not really. You might think, okay, I I see that. What does this have to do with my gay neighbor or my lesbian daughter? A lot. Because if our message to them is it is not God's will to be in a same-sex relationship, so what does it mean for them right now, today? Not be in a relationship. Be single. Now, for a time, maybe, maybe even the rest of their life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for single women, single men to thrive in Christian community today? Not so much. Singles often feel like second-class citizens. This is how important this is. We have denigrated singleness. We, like the world, believe that singleness is equivalent to loneliness. That's what many of my gay friends tell me. What you're saying is your God wants me to be lonely for the rest of my life. You know what they're doing is they're equating singleness with loneliness. But it's not the same. You know why I can say that? Because I know some people who are married and they're still miserably lonely. So it is not marriage that's going to bring or cure your loneliness. It is not marriage that should bring you ultimate contentment. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who should bring you ultimate contentment, not another person. Marriage should not meet all your needs. That is God's job. You know, and, and, and it's such a part of our culture. It's ingrained almost in Christian culture, right? I teach at Moody Bridal Institute. It's crazy what happens on campus, right? I mean, yes, certainly don't do as the world does the way they date. But yet I'm not too sure if, like, you need to discuss, you know, how many children you want to have on your first date. I think there needs to be some, bad, like, get their name first maybe, you know, like get to know them a little be friends first. Singleness is not equated to loneliness. We have to, but and yet it's, it's this almost idolatry of marriage that I see in the world and in the church. Think about our kids. They teach them fairy tales. How do all fairy tales end? Well, well first they get married and then they live heavily ever after, Right? The end, like no 10-year checkup, no 20-year checkup. Hopefully, they're still living happily ever after. But is, you know, the real lesson we should be teaching our kids is it's not marriage that should bring you ultimate contentment. Like I said, it is Jesus Christ who should bring, bring you ultimate contentment, whether you're married or whether you're single. And I'm not at all 
So if you don't know this, I am single. I'm 48 years old. I'm a single, you know, single man. And, and I definitely have a specific burden to help the, the church have a more biblical understanding of singleness. But I'm not denigrating marriage at all. I'm saying that both are good, but we're not saying that. We're not saying both are good. We're saying one is good and one is not. We have to continue to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. But you know what I see? I see us doing this, lifting up the beauty and gift of marriage, at the expense of singleness. So now singleness, at best, is a consolation prize. I'm sorry you're single. I'm sorry you have to deal with that. You probably even have some friends who are single. Maybe they're past their prime, over 30 or 40. I bet you may feel sorry for them. Singles, Christian singles, don't need our pity. They need to be loved. They need to be shown that though they might not have a spouse, might not have children of their own, you know what they do have that's even greater than that? They have the family of God. They have eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. Not bound by physical blood, but bound by the blood of Christ. We need to actually transform the way that we think about family because we are very family-based. That's good. But actually, even greater than our own families, our own spouses, our own children, our own brothers and sisters that are bound by physical blood, actually, that's temporary. The only eternal relationships that we will have that, go, that will go on into eternity are those bound by the blood of Christ. We need to start living as if we really are brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage, but we haven't. So I have this friend who was a missionary in China. She went to China single. She returned from China five years later here in the U.S. And when she was on furlough, for, uh, she was here for several weeks she was able to see several of her friends that she hadn't seen for a really long time. And so when they met, they were really excited. They would talk, you know, they would all ask her about her ministry in China, about her future ministry plans, and they would get to some personal things like, are you dating anyone? Do you have anyone special in your life? And each time she was like, no, not yet. Do you know how some of her friends responded? Can I pray for you? It was as if she had cancer. Singleness is not cancer. Singleness is not a curse. But we often treat it like that, like the unbearable burden. Singles have this problem of being single, and they need to be fixed of that problem. That's why we say, I want to fix you up with someone. Think about the words we use. Maybe instead of trying to fix someone up with someone, maybe you should just spend time with them. Maybe we just need to be treating them like family. We are family. It's not cancer. It's not a curse. 
Let's look to God's Word. You know, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul spends an entire chapter talking about singleness and marriage. As a matter, I think that this is so key, so key. I mean, I actually spent four chapters in my book talking about marriage and singleness. That's how important this is. And, and I didn't want to just kind of write another few chapters, write another book, some things that like everyone kind of already knew. I'm just rehashing. I, I, I think that there's some correction that we have to come to of having a correct understanding of God's intent for marriage, God's intent for singleness. I mean, let us not forget our Lord was unmarried. And yet, he's fully human. He wasn't waiting, pining away his years, waiting for that special moment. He lived fully in that moment as man, as God. Paul spends an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, talking about marriage and singleness. And in this chapter, he says that singleness is not only good, it's a gift. But can I give you some advice as a single Christian man? For those of you that are not single anymore, you're married, don't keep reminding your Christian single friends that this is a gift. Because I actually don't know many singles that like that verse. I don't you know, oh, that's my life verse. Hallelujah. I love it when Paul says that is a gift. No, usually it's the opposite. I don't like, I don't agree when Paul says that is a gift. It doesn't feel like a gift. It does not, you know, I don't want, instead, <laughs> instead they're like, what's the return policy on that gift? You know, still got that receipt. Can I give it back like a bad Christmas present? And I get that as a single man. I know how hard it can be single. It's not easy being single, but I've spoken to a few peer, married people, and I hear that marriage can be hard too. <laughs> but there's also some blessings that come with marriage, right? In the same way, singleness can be hard. But there are also blessings that come with being single. But then why is it that we only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenges of singleness? You see how this is starkly inconsistent and unbiblical? We can all agree that marriage is a gift. Hallelujah, marriage is a gift. It's so good. When it comes to singleness, we don't really fully wholeheartedly agree that singleness is a gift. Instead, you know what we say? We say singleness, whew, it's a calling. <laughs> Seriously, like not anyone can be single. You have to be really, really, you know, make sure you're, you know, I, I even know you have a friend that was like, you know, telling, talking with their pastor, like, I think, you know, you know, this is my, this is, you know, God is giving me special this to be single and it's a gift. I'm like, oh, I don't know. You better pray about that. It's really hard. We're on the flip side, you know, someone like tells their pastor, you know, I just met this someone. Oh, hallelujah, when are you guys getting married? I just wonder if we maybe flip those responses around, maybe we wouldn't have so many Christian divorces. Let's not trivialize either. Marriage, if it is sanctified, if it is holy, then let's treat it as such. Singleness is good. It's a, it's, it's a gift. And, you know, the majority of my Christian friends, they are married and they're happily married. But they do tell me that secret about marriage. It's hard. <laughs> it's not easy. 
Think about it, right? Loving unconditionally, that's not supposed to be easy. Paul even goes on to say in Ephesians 5, husbands, lay your life down for your wives. Amen, ladies? Amen? So I don't know what husband that doesn't struggle with that impossible calling. So do you know what I say tongue-in-cheek about marriage? I say marriage, whew, that's a calling, seriously. <laughs> Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. But I am not saying that then singleness is better than marriage or the other way around. Honestly, I'm just looking at the full counsel of God, Old Testament to New Testament, and recognizing that godly marriage, godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should no longer only emphasize one at the expense of the other. Actually, I think that might be one of the reasons that plays into all this confusion on marriage. I mean, think about it. How in the world did, the, did marriage, which is essentially a contract, an agreement, a covenant between two people, turn into a right? An agreement, a contract between two people can't be a right. It is just a con It's a covenant. And I think that part of the reason is our distortion of singleness. Because what I often hear from those that are, you know, marriage, gay marriage activists, they say it's unfair to withhold this from someone. It's not fair for them to be single. And if singleness is unfair, if singleness is a curse, then obviously marriage must be a right. See how that's easy to flow into that? So actually, I think part of the answer is helping people to understand that singleness is not a curse. Singleness can be a blessing. Marriage does not have a monopoly on love. As a matter of fact, when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in June, on June 26, 2015, my good friend Rosaria Butterfield and I wrote this response, and we called it Something Greater Than Marriage. It was in response to Justice Kennedy's, um, uh, he wrote the majority opinion, and he wrote, marriage is the highest ideal of love. I disagree. It is not the highest ideal of love. God is. God alone is love. So we have to... I, Honestly, I don't even know if we're ready to address this issue of sexuality until we first redeem biblical singleness. Second, we need to be consistent regarding uh, sexuality. What is God's standard when it comes to sexuality? Oh, that's easy. Heterosexuality. Because if homosexuality is not, not right, then heterosexuality must be. But let's break that down for a moment. Heterosexuality means being attracted with some of the opposite sex, being sexually intimate with someone of the opposite sex with no qualification. And that's so broad of a definition that I could be sleeping with half a dozen women. That's considered heterosexuality, right? I could be a married man and I'm, ch and I'm cheating on my wife with another woman. That's also considered heterosexuality. I could even be an unmarried man, and I'm living with my girlfriend. We're committed to one another. We've never been with anyone else. We've been together for several years. We even have some children together out of wedlock. Also heterosexual. Those three scenarios that I gave you are all sinful in God's eyes, and I could give you more. God would never use 
a category like that that included so much sin. And I know you're thinking, well, but marriage is heterosexual. True, that's one form of a heterosexual relationship, but not the only. And so within this broad category that is inclusive of all different types of heterosexual relationships or heterosexual behavior, Yes, marriage is there, but that's the only one that God would bless. Everything else is sinful in God's eyes. And in our world of ambiguity, right? Right? Fifty shades of gray, a million shades of gray. There's no more room to be ambiguous. Heterosexuality is not God's standard. If it isn't, and obviously it's also not homosexuality, then what is God's standard? Holy sexuality. What is holy sexuality? I read through the full counsel of God, and I see that there's only two paths for us to live. One, if you are not married, if you're single, how do you live? You're, you're going to be sexually abstinent. If you're not single and you are married, how do you live? You're going to be faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So, this is holy sexuality. Chastity in singleness, faithfulness in marriage. What I realized is that those two paths, those two ways, there is not one term that includes both of those. So I created a term, holy sexuality. And I did that purposely to juxtapose against the secular paradigm, this paradigm that we think Homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual is not a biblical standard or framework. You know what we should do with it? Trash it. Get rid of it. It does not help when it comes to Christian living. That's not biblical categories. You will not find the word heterosexual, heterosexuality in God's Word. You will find holiness. You will find chastity and singleness. You will find faithfulness in marriage. So let's use God's standard, holy sexuality or not, and what I like about this new framework is, new standard homosexuality is, this applies to everyone. Every one of us are called to pursue holiness, not on our own strength. Coming to Christ, that is what enables us. The Holy Spirit empowers us. We all need to pursue holiness, whether you're young or old, whether you're a man or woman, whether you have opposite sex attractions or same sex attractions. We all need to pursue holiness. And I know you might think, well, that's fine. But my gay friend does not, cannot, you know, only has this one ability, this one way to choose to be single for the rest of their life. Not necessarily so. Let me give you an example. A friend of mine lived as a gay man for many years, like myself, came to Christ, but he had no interest in girls before coming to Christ or even after. So he was going to be single for the rest of his life. And he was okay with that. He was in a great church. There was his family. He became really close friends with a young lady who was also a brand new Christian. She came from a broken past, nothing to do with homosexuality, but she was, like many non-Christian girls, she was sexually active. She dated boys. Unfortunately, some of those relationships were a bit toxic. She also, unfortunately, had a few abortions. So when she came to Christ, she committed to God that she was not going to date for a while because she really wanted to focus on her relationship with God. So the two of them felt really safe because there wasn't that weirdness that happens between a guy and a girl. You know what I mean? Does he like me? Does she like me? Because he knew she didn't want to date. She knew he didn't like girls. So they felt really safe together. 
After years of being best friends, he began noticing some things about her. Her hair. She smelled good and she had curves. <laughs> he says puberty is hard going through once, try going through puberty twice. <laughs> he got up enough courage, asked her out on a date, and after some time of dating, he asked her to marry him. And on their wedding night, he told his new bride, he said, Honey, I can't explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy sexuality. Chastity and singleness. Faithfulness in marriage. Convicted regarding relationships. Convicted, consistent regarding relationships. Consistent regarding sexuality. Third, we need to be consistent regarding change. What does change look like? So if it's not gay to straight, well, what about if a person still has those temptations? Has that person really been changed? Because I get this question sometimes. Like, like, maybe this young lady, she's come out of lesbian relationships. She's put her faith in Christ. But she still has and has, is tempted by the same sex. She has, still has same-sex attractions, but she doesn't act on it. Would we say that, you know, that she hasn't been fully transformed? Well, if so, do we apply that same level of change to someone else? Another sin issue. Say I have a friend who was a drunk, comes to Christ, stopped drinking. But even after years of sobriety, he tells me that he still has urges to drink, but he doesn't. Would we tell him, you haven't been changed? We need to lay some hands on you. You need some deliverance. I hope not. Because I think the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh and says yes to God. Because here's the truth. Change is not the absence of temptations. God does not promise you that when you come to Jesus, you'll never be tempted with sin again. No. You will be tempted. Not if, but when. It's not whether you're tempted, but what you do with that temptation that God judges us on, that God um, will be pleased by when we resist temptations. Jesus, remember, was tempted. Temptation in and of itself is, sin, is not sin, but it certainly quickly leads into sin. You see, this is so important because when we start with the correct foundation— when we understand this and diagnose this correctly, not as somehow as some disorder, not somehow as this, as, as this kind of developmental issue, but as sin, then we know what is the answer. Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. And I know in this room, that we have people who have prodigals, a prodigal daughter, a prodigal son. Maybe they walked away from God. Maybe they embrace a gay identity. And you might think, what did I do wrong? I'm here to tell you, it's not your fault. You could have been a perfect parent. Your children are still sinners. What makes us think? I mean, 
look at Adam and Eve. Did they not have a perfect father? Did they not even have a perfect environment? They still sinned. What makes us think that we can do better? Do you know perfect parenting does not guarantee perfect children? Christians, your job as a parent, your main job as a parent is not necessarily to produce godly children. That's not your main job. You know what your main job is? To be a godly parent. You probably have friends. You look at them and like how they raised their kids and they did everything wrong, right? I mean, like they weren't with them. They, I mean, like they didn't spend time with them and their kids turned out great. You know what I mean? I mean, they, you know those people? Like we hate those people, you know, but like what did they do? They're like they did everything wrong and their kids turned out great. And then you look at maybe other parents or maybe this is you and you're like, man, I did everything. Like I, you know, maybe moms, maybe you gave up everything. You gave up education, you gave up career, all of that so you could stay home with your kids. Dads, like you took time off work. You were with your kids. You, you did devotions. You, I mean, you, you brought them to church. You talked to them and they walked away. You know what that tells me? You're not God. You're not God. You cannot take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. You can't change one from death to life. Only God can. Be godly. Point your children to Christ. Do all you can to influence them to Christ. But you know what? Let God do the rest. And don't beat yourself up. Don't allow the world and sometimes even other Christians to heap on shame. It's not your fault. So we have to realize we need to be convicted, consistent. Lastly, we need to be compassionate. I've been teaching at Moody for 11 years. Isn't that crazy? They still let me teach there. 11 years. And... Every year I get students that confide with me. They're wrestling with their sexuality. They think they're gay. They have same-sex attractions. You know what breaks my heart the most is that when they tell me they haven't told anyone. They haven't told their best friends. They haven't told their parents. Because of that isolation, sometimes they suffer with depression and even sometimes thoughts of suicide. That should move us that there are people in the body of Christ who for whatever reason feel that they can't share this with the rest of us. So for some, this is an issue between life and death. So how can we do a better job at being compassionate, at being redemptive? First, expect that this is present here in the body of Christ, not be surprised. In our own small groups, in our own pews. But we are sometimes surprised. Like, I'll get this. Wow, man, I grew up with this guy. We went to a youth group together. We grew up together. He loves Jesus. And he just told me that he has same-sex attractions. Like, I don't know how that happened. He came from a good home. His parents were Christian. He was even homeschooled. (laughs) And I'm like, wait a second. Let me hear you out. Like, are you really saying that if, if you think that someone comes from a good home, they have Christian parents, they're even homeschooled, that they're exempt from struggling with sin? 
Okay, newsflash. I'm sensing in this room, and there's a good group of us, there's bound to be at least one, maybe two of you that's personally struggling with sin. <laughs> don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass you, right? <laughs> right? I mean, what's the body? I mean, <laughs> we're all struggling with sin, right? What's the body of Christ? Are we a group of people that have got it all together, got our ducks in a row, have no problems? We meet once a week, we hold hands and we sing Kumbaya. Is that what we are? Is that the church? Or is the body of Christ a group of people who know, we come together, we know that we are broken and we desperately need Jesus? I'll just be totally honest with you. I am broken and I need Jesus. Anyone out there, out, else out there that relates to that at all? And so let us all, hand in hand, walk together to him not because I can fix you, not even because I have the answers, but I know someone who does, and his name is Jesus. So let's just expect that. Yes, your sin might look different from her sin and his sin, but at the end of the day, and we can focus so much on how we're different, but to me, what actually is more encouraging to me is that at the end of the day, it's sin, and that sin needs Christ as the answer, so we're bound by that. We need to realize that. That is the hope. Second, know your position. And what I mean is not simply that's bad, don't do it. But my like, biggest takeaway when I tell people and when I talk to people is this. If I'm going to have any position, it's that I want to lead people into a deeper, deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just people. I don't want people to just know Jesus. Demons know Jesus. It's making no difference in them. Deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, further continuing to go on so that we're willing to surrender everything. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must, what? Deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus should cost us everything. If it hasn't, you're following the wrong Jesus. It's about full surrender and union with Christ. Third, Maybe you have a friend who you've always wondered whether they're wrestling with this and you want to ask them, are you struggling with this? I want to walk with you through this. So how do I bring it up? Don't. Imagine if someone came up to you out of the blue and asked, hey, do you have same-sex attractions? Awkward. I'll just let you know. Awkward. <laughs> but what you can do is give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, I thank God for you, and I just want you to know nothing can change our friendship. Nothing can change my love for you. When you say that, you've just created a safe, redemptive space and invited them in. We should be doing that with all our close friends. Fourth, give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, I mean, uh, fourth, we need to commit as a body of Christ that we will have zero tolerance on the bullying and the jokes. The world is kind of addressing bullying, and I wonder why. They don't have any reason to do that. They don't have any foundation. I mean, if you believe in evolution, survival of the fittest, actually, I think bullying is actually part of that, right? I mean, think about it, survival of the fittest. We actually have the correct foundation. And what is that? We're all created in the image of God, all of us. Everyone that ever lived was created in the image of God. And because of that, we all have value, dig dignity before God. So therefore, if someone is making fun of someone else, another image of God, I'm going to stand up for that one. So let us 
I mean, just even with our youth, communicate to them there's no place in the life of a Christian to bully or make fun of someone else. Even our words. Our words should build up, not tear down. We can be flippant. That's so gay. I tell, I tell my youth uh, that I speak to, you know, you say that, you know, that shirt is so gay. A shirt can't be gay. Let's expand our vocabulary, kids. You know, how about, instead of saying that's so gay, how about that's so Baptist or that's so Presbyterian, you know, whatever. I'm sure you think of something very, very good. Convicted, consistent, compassionate, lasting, we need to be com- complete. Complete in our message, complete in how we communicate, what we communicate, because we as Christians need to focus on, upon God's truth. But why? Because it's the truth that sets us free. So is the truth that we're sharing to the gay community setting people free. What is that truth? Oh, that's easy. It's a sin. Okay. Is that all? Because most say nothing after that. Like, it's a sin, period. You know what that's equivalent to? That's equivalent to giving someone a one spiritual law tract. You guys remember the four spiritual laws? The funny thing is I, I just spoke uh, in, in uh, North Carolina just two days ago at a high school. And I, and I said, anyone know the four spiritual? You know, you guys know this, you know, tracks? They're like, tracks? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, paper. You know, they, 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 so a long time ago we used to have paper and, you know, the, you know these, they, don't, they have no clue what tracks are. So you guys know the four spiritual laws, right? I mean, that was a big thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a, I think I'm, I'm still a brand new Christian. And even in 2000, I mean, we still had tracks. So the four spiritual laws, well, this is not the four spiritual laws. This is the one spiritual law that goes something like this. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry, in case you didn't know, that's not good news, right? There's nothing good about that. But think about it. That's the message we have been giving to the gay community. You're a sinner, you're going to hell, there's no hope for you. It's no wonder why the gay community want nothing to do with us. Because we have not been giving them the good news. We have only telling them the bad news. We have not been giving them the complete truth. We have been telling them an incomplete truth. And when you tell someone an incomplete truth, that's just as harmful as telling someone a lie. And that is not setting anyone free. So what is the complete truth? The complete truth. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to list ten sins. And in this list of ten sins are two Greek words that focus upon homosexual behavior. Many times people look at this, these verses and say, Look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. You know when they do that? They conveniently forget about the eight other sins. Because if we look at all ten sins, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. And I praise the Lord, Paul didn't stop there. Because he goes on to say in one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, he says, such were. Catch that. Were. Some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That is not good news. That's amazing news. 
That is news that we can tell anyone who needs to know about Jesus Christ. So our message has to be redemptive. If you're not sharing about the good news in Jesus Christ, you are not sharing the good news. You're not sharing the gospel. You know our friends in the gay community, your son or daughter who's gay, their main problem is not their sexuality. Their main problem is to fully surrender to Christ. My biggest sin was not same-sex relationships. My biggest sin was unbelief. Let's make the most important thing the most important thing. Faith in Christ. Surrendering to Christ. We have to be redemptive. So how do we do that? How do we be redemptive? Well, I'm going to give you just practical things here before we jump to the Q&A. But we need to first differentiate between two groups. Though all people who have same-sex attractions, we can't treat the same way because some know Christ, others don't, or they hold to a false gospel. So let's first focus upon Christians who have same-sex attractions. Say after this weekend you have a good friend that confides with you. Do you know what to say or do? First, thank them. Thank them that they trusted you with this. I mean, it's hard opening up, especially to another Christian about this. They, I mean, they're probably, they were scared. They hesitated, they, and they finally they opened up to you. Thank them that they trust you. Don't freak out. Thank them. Ask them also how their faith fits into it. That's important too. Second, tell them that, are, that they're not alone. Many people think they have to go through life all alone, and that's a scary thought. Third, help remind them, and this could be one of the most important things, help remind them that their identity needs to be in Christ. I think this is actually extremely foundational. Uh, my book begins with that, identity. Why? Because I know of no other sin issue where we have conflated sexuality with who we are. We have conflated the sin issue with who we are. If you have a gay friend or a gay loved one, when you talk to them, what does it mean when you say, I'm gay? Being gay for them does not mean this is what they do. Being gay for them does not mean this is what they feel. Being gay for them, you know what it means? That this is who they are. This shift, this subtle shift from what to who has created a radically distorted view of personhood. Sexuality is not who we are, but how we are. It's a big difference. And it wasn't until I was able to separate my sexuality with who I was that then I was able to differentiate between my behavior and my desires. We want to jump in and talk about behavior. But when you do and you say, that's sin, they don't hear you saying that their behavior is sin. You know what they hear you saying? They hear you saying, you just said that my whole person is an abomination. All of me is sin because they don't hear that their sexuality is what they do or what they feel, but they hear that as who they are. Th that was the first thing that I needed to see. I think that's why God put me in prison because I needed that time to, for God to get that into my hard head. This is not who I was, but how I was, how I am. So, we need to remind each other that our identity needs to be in Christ. This is not who you are. Even those of you that have opposite sex attractions, don't identify by your sexuality. Don't walk around and say, hi, I'm straight. Who cares? <laughs> right? I mean, if my mom said, hi, my, my, my name's Angela, I'm straight. What? Who cares? 
You know what matters? Are you following Christ or not? That's what matters. Your identity is in Christ. Fourth, be realistic. Don't give these false promises that following Jesus is easy. Because you know what I see? Following Jesus is hard. It's not easy. It was easier before I became a Christian. I did whatever I wanted. I had an itch, I scratched it. I had a desire, I did it. And now I have a heavenly father that I want to please, and I have an enemy nipping at my heels. But you know the, the difference? My hope, my joy is not bound up in this world or my circumstances. That's a difference. The gospel is costly, but it's worth it. Fifth, don't focus on the externals, whether how they walk or talk or the length of their hair or short or long or whatever, whether, you know, how they, you know, whatever it is. That's not as important as the heart. And I want to see change from the inside out, not from the outside in. Lastly, we need to encourage God-honoring same-sex friendships within the body of Christ. We need to truly be brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's more than just friendship because sometimes people thought, oh, we need to help people, you know, encourage kind of covenanted spiritual friendships. And I don't see that as the correct answer. I see as the correct answer is the church because I can be best friends with someone at the expense of the church. We need, the, if you love Christ, you need to also love the body of Christ. So how do we share Christ with those in the gay community? This is what you should not do. Do not compare this with an addiction, pedophilia, or murder. Not a good way to win people to Christ. Just don't do that. Don't say these two phrases. Uh, oh, don't see, say these two words, lifestyle or choice. I never use those words as a gay man. And do you know why? Wrong identity. I did not see sexuality as my lifestyle. This was who I was. And if you use those phrases or those words, it can be offensive to them. And I'm willing to not use a word or two for the sake of not offending so I can win them to Christ. Third, don't say the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. We love that phrase, right? It makes sense to us. It don't make sense to an unbeliever. <laughs> when you tell someone, I love you, but I hate your sin, they don't feel loved. Do it. Don't say it. Also, don't feel the need that you have to debate. Because sometimes we feel like we're in this catch-22. They ask a question, they're like, I can't lie, so I have to tell them. It's, you know, you're living in sin. But if you look at the example of Jesus, read through the gospel. Next time you read through the gospels, look at every time that someone posed Jesus a question. He did not always answer their question. Isn't that interesting? He was silent sometimes. Or, and I love when he does this, they'd ask one question, he'd give another answer, right? You know, or like, you know, should we, you know, should we pay, you know, tax? Give me a coin. You know, what's on the coin? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's? Give to God what's God? Bam. You know, I mean, he, he pointed to the more important question. Give your all to God. They ask about tax. He says, give your all to God, essentially. Give your whole being to God. We don't have to always, because Jesus knows what's the more important question that, that needs to be answered, and he answers that. In the same way, when people ask about morality, do you think this is sin? Convincing people about morality is not going to save them. If we think that, that's legalism. What is going to save them is faith in Christ. So talk about God and talk about Christ. Like you, one thing, you could one way you could kind of deflect it. I would say, 
You know, when people ask, do you think this is sin? I could say, you know, I value our friendship more than debating all the time. I want to learn, from, I, want, I want to, you know, learn about more about you. Let's, can we celebrate our similarities and tolerate our differences? Or you could say, you don't even believe in God, so what does it matter what God thinks? Let's talk about God first. Because that is more important. So what should you do? We'll just finish with this, pray. I think we've lost the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting. How many of you guys know of that great movie, War Room? You guys know that movie? So that movie, uh, produced and written by the Kendrick brothers, that movie, right before it was released, they actually uh, gave it to Chris Fabry, an author, to turn their movie into a book. That book was released around the same time as the movie, uh, the publisher, Tyndale House, gave us a, copy, a complimentary copy of the, of, of the book. We opened it up, and Chris Fabry, the author, dedicated that book to my mom. Do battle for people who are unable to battle for themselves. How many of us are praying for those in the gay community? How many of us are fasting for those in the gay community? It's not just, oh, I guess all I can do is pray. That can be everything. Listen, don't be quick to speak, but be quick to listen. Sometimes we want to speak, 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 and, you know, speak truth, and it could be saving knowledge, but sometimes we just need to listen. There's a proverb, not, not in the Bible, but it says, we have two ears, one mouth. Listen twice as much as you speak. It's a good lesson. Third, be intentional. Don't be afraid to invite your gay neighbor or your gay coworker out to coffee or even dinner into your, into your own home. And I know people are think, wait a sec, if I do that, will I be condoning their sin? But let's think about this. We normally have sinners over for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> nothing new. Nothing, you're just eating with them. You're not sinning with them. That would be a different story. You're eating with them. Fourth, be patient and persistent. Sometimes we want things done now, right? I mean, in even your child, your prodigal, you want things done now. But it's in God's timing. In most situations, it's going to take time, months, years. Like even for me, eight years, that's really a short time. I know people who've been praying for decades. Let's stick in it for the long haul. Lastly, be patient and persistent. Uh, lastly, uh, be transparent. Share and what I mean, be transparent about what God is doing in your life. Don't be afraid to talk about that. Because you can have your gay friend and you like pull out your Bible or pull out a track and they're gone. <laughs> they're like running, I'm out of there. But you know what they can argue with? The work of God in your own life today, this week. Because if you are a Christian, none of us should be the same as we were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or even 10 weeks ago. Talk about it. Don't be afraid. Talk about your doubts, your fears. They want to see real people. Because let me tell you, I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives. I would never have picked up the Bible from the trash can. Remember that, the New Testament Gideon? I wouldn't have picked up it from the Bible from the trash if I didn't see the Bible lived out my father's life and my mother's life. I did not leave pursuing same-sex relationships because my parents convinced me they were sinful. I left it because they showed me something better. 
and his name is Jesus. Our job as followers of Christ is to show a dying world out there that no matter what they're desperately clinging to, whether it's a job, career, money, whether it's even a spouse or family, no matter what they're holding to, all the fool's gold in the world, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but Jesus is best. So my hope is that we Christians will live our lives in a way that it is unmistakable that not only is Jesus better, but a relationship with Christ is the best. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, help us that in the midst of our own mundane lives, that you will give us the ability to live passionately, unmistakably, that Jesus that is within us is better than anything and everything that this world has to offer. God, we can't do that alone. Empower us, embolden us to do so. We praise you and we ask this in the powerful name of Christ and the people of God said, amen. I think, well, I went a little over, but I think we might have a little bit of time for Q&A. So um, Pastor Brian has a microphone or if you, I mean, we, you might be able to just stand up and ask that question um, Raise your hand, stand up. It's always that first one that's got to be that bold one. All right, there. Yes, so how do I answer that question about hereditary homosexuality? Are people born gay? Is it nature or is it nurture? Is it biology? Is it environment? So first of all, um, so you know my background in the health sciences, so uh, they didn't teach me any science at Moody. Uh, You know, that wasn't our forte. Uh, But being... Uh, you know, Chinese, that's, you know, you either do math or science, you know, and so that was my thing. And, um, but amazingly, you know, all those years, people are like wasted, but who knew that I was going to be ministering on this, on homosexuality and have to answer that question about, because there's a lot of science out there, a lot of research looking at the etiology, the study of causation of, for homosexuality, you know, same-sex attractions. And what's interesting is that regardless of what the world says and pop culture says, to date, there's nothing conclusive. Nothing has been proven. It's only kind of academic conjecture. Like it's, it's likely that there's, it's multifaceted. It's not just one thing. Many things that could play into this. So to date, we don't have anything uh, that is saying it is or it isn't. And because we don't have any evidence that it, you know, of exactly what it is, or we don't even, we can't even uh, say definitively that it is. All we can say is very likely it is combination of multi factors that are some biological, some that are environmental. So it, there is a chance that there could be some genetic link to it. There could be some other, you know. Uh, biological, hormonal issues, neurological, but there's also developmental. We just don't know how much it, nothing, nothing really is conclusive to date. So that, that's kind of the science. But me as, as now, you know, looking at the Bible and a theologian, I want to then say, so what does God's word say? Because I've heard several people talk on this about nature, nurture, and they look at the science and then they'll come to the conclusion as Christians. And I think I can't just come to a conclusion simply when after looking at science. As Christians, we should always come to God's Word. I mean, even, I think, if you're doing math, 
for the glory of God, you should go to God's word to say, what does God tell me about being a mathematician? What does God tell me about being a, a, a businessman for the glory of God? In the same way, all this research, okay, especially when it's talking about the human condition. The Bible has a lot to say about the human condition. So I go to God's word. And I need to start with the fact that they were created in God's image, Genesis 1, but also that we all have a sin nature, Genesis 3. So when people say, well, I've been this way for as long as I remember, so this is, must be, you know, God created me this way. You know what they're forgetting? They're forgetting Genesis 3. I mean, unbelievers aren't going to hold to that, but Christians say this. I've been, you know, the, you know, this friend of mine has been this way for as long as I remember. Well, been what way? Because is it this part of the image of God, which is good, or is it part of our sin nature? Because we all start off with both of those. So what the Bible tells me is I have this thing that I've been born with. You can call that thing my sin nature. So I'm not really the way that I ought to be. That's pretty orthodox Christianity. However, I don't think then that people, that I can, that I can then say that we are born gay. I can say we're born with a sin nature. We're born with a propensity to sin. And I really think that many of us, I think all of us, are born with a certain specific propensity toward a certain sin. You might be born with a certain propensity toward lust, toward anger, toward jealousy, toward gossiping. You fill in the blank. Toward pornography, toward same-sex attractions. But you know, a predisposition is not the same thing as a predetermination. Predetermination means no matter what happens, I'm going to be this way. A predisposition just means you have a more likelihood that this is, you know, that is going to be your struggle, like alcoholism. It's been proven in, in, in science that it's multifaceted. Even genetics plays a role. But you know what's more important? Because, I mean, even though science is very clear that this has not been proven that people are born gay, it's, it's like you talk to the world and they're like, this is the way. I mean, you even have songs that are like, born this way, you know, that science that's not what science is saying but let's just say for argument's sake someone is i can still look to god's word i can actually even go to the very words of jesus because he says something that answers that question that you're born gay that people think they're born gay you know what jesus says jesus says that even though you might think you're born gay, Jesus says that you must be born again. The old has gone, the new has come. In Christ, you are a new creation. I know nothing more gospel than that. That message is not just for the gay community. That message is for everyone. You must be born again. Yes, over here. My old friends from my old life, how have they responded? They, um, there was a time where I kind of needed to have some distance from them, not, not because they're gay or they're still, you know, in same-sex relationships. Many of them were still partying in, 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 the, in the drug scene, and they weren't big into it. They were trying to balance being very professional. And actually, many of them were successful businessmen, uh, doctors, lawyers, and they were kind of partying on the weekend. So I, I knew that I, I needed to distance myself away from that. 
but, uh, you know, because I got out of prison in 2001, a few years after that, I was becoming a bit more public in my ministry and traveling, so they kind of found me online, Facebook, on, on my website, and reached out to me, and so I reconnected with them. Not, uh, I have yet to kind of see them, but we've connected over the phone, um, and I, I st- they're, they're wonderful people. I, I love them. Um, I want them to know Christ, but I've, I've spoken to them and hear in their voice uh, that they think I'm crazy. <laughs> they think I've lost my marbles. They think I'm, um, I'm, I'm, you know, suppressing who I really am. I'm denying myself, which I am. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, some say I'm happy for you. You know, that's a very non-Christian to say, I'm so happy, I'm happy for you, you know, and then the unimplied, not for me. Um, so that's, that's, but I, I pray for them. I mean, it's, it's just going to take a miracle. Yep. Thanks for asking. Yes, over here. Mm. Yes, come back tomorrow. <laughs> the question was, tell me about my, my parents, right? So please, you will hear from them personally. Um, you will even, my, my dad's there. There's my dad right, right in the back. He's, yeah, he loves to sit there in the back and take notes and, you know, yes, praise the Lord. Uh, my mom's here as well. Uh, she's at the hotel because uh, my new book that came out in November, right before uh, Thanksgiving, we're also translating that at the same time. So once I finished it, then we started translating it and we have a a translation team is going to be published um, at this evangelical publisher in Taiwan, which is, you know, it, in Taiwan, they're not communist. Communist China, they're, they are communist. And, um, and uh, so they're, they're actually, she's kind of overseeing that. So the tra- we have a team of translators, and they're, they're giving chapters to her, and she has to over, uh, oversee that. So she had to kind of work on one chapter today to get it in. So she, but you will see her tomorrow. So you will definitely hear their story, and it's a beautiful story. My testimony would be nothing apart from theirs. Yes, in the back. Mm. So the question was, do I think that uh, Christians have a duty or a responsibility uh, to influence um, uh, laws and public policy, right? Uh, things like that. So, um, I obviously, from Paul's words, um, especially in Romans, uh, the government has been given to us to um, protect us, uh, to be the sword in a sense, to kind of bring the peace and safety, and also to bring uh, kind of law and order. Um, our government here in the U.S. Uh, is a, a democratic republic, so um, that involves the only way that a democratic republic can work is that uh, people are involved. And um, I believe that, and so therefore we vote, therefore we voice our opinion. Um, you know, there's this attempt now to, they call separate the church from the state, which really means the eradication of the church from the state, and that's not what the founding fathers meant. But I, I believe that um, I believe that that we shouldn't uh, shy away from being involved. 
But I also believe that as people are involved, and, and it depends on, on your involvement, um, we, we need to recognize uh, that the kingdom of the world is subservient to the kingdom of God. So I, I think that we always need to see that in our battle for, you know, bringing peace and order and, and, and even God's truth here. I mean, and of course, we, we can't expect the world to obey everything that, that the world expects. Or I'm sorry, that, that we, we can't accept the, expect the world to obey God's law, uh, God's law. But um, I, I think that we can still voice our opinion. I mean, just, you know, I think many of our laws are based upon the Bible. You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Where do you get that from? <laughs> um, again, if, 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 if everything's just a mistake and evolution, then, you know, why not steal? I mean, it's going to benefit me, and, right? So who cares, right? Survival of the fittest. Um, so, but, but I think that when we do it, we need to be uh, full of grace and full of truth. So I, I, I think that it's just this, this tension. I don't know if that, that was a complete answer to your question, but I think we need to live in this tension of always lifting up uh, the, the, the winning of souls kind of above everything else. Um, I, before the federal government Passed, unfortunately, uh, you know, the. Actually, I'm sorry, it wasn't even the federal government. It was the Supreme Court. You know, they kind of overturned state laws. There was a lot of stuff going on, and I, I personally, I was not publicly active involved uh, because my focus, I wanted to, um, that could affect my impact. Uh, because I wanted to really focus upon sharing Christ. But that didn't mean that I was then for gay marriage. So sometimes we have this dichotomy. It's like either you're completely for or completely against, and you have to be public about that. Um, I think that there can also be this middle ground that, that you can't. Because, and this is where some of this younger generation, they're like, well, I don't want to be kind of like the, what the, the angry Christians are perceived. So then they're like, well, I'm all for it. And I'm like, that's not correct either because... I never want it like this, so I'm going to advocate because I want them to be happy. And I'm like, well, but marriage isn't the, what brings happiness. It should be Christ who brings us happiness, right? I always want Christ to be the answer. Uh, so I think, unfortunately, we have this younger generation that kind of swung the pendulum in the opposite direction, and they're just all about kind of, you know, sort of advocating. And I even know people who are like, oh, no, I advocate for same-sex marriage, but I think it's sin. I'm like, but why? I, I, don't, I don't see how we can, because I never want to put a stumbling block in the way, if they're married, that can be a huge stumbling block for them to come to know Christ. So I don't know. I think it's this balance of tension that, that I do think that Christians, we need to, I think there needs to be people. That, that is what shapes us and guides us. I mean, I think it was, was it Martin Luther King that said um, it's the church that is the kind of moral guide, I don't know exactly, for, for the state. Um, and you take that away and you get communist China, you know, and you get... Um, you know, all that. I mean, even in Germany where they were kind of saying that they're, you know, we're doing this in the, you know, Christian with Hitler. You know, the reason why Hitler had his way is because no one said anything, right? Um, so we, we need to, so I think there, there is a sense where we can be involved, but always elevating um, gospel truth um, 
first. Yes, over here. Mm, yes. Y yes. So um, for business, so the question was, what about Christian businessman or businesswoman if they have a, uh, like a bakery or even like a the photo thing. Um, what is it? A photo company. I don't know what you call this. People who take photographs. Uh, photographer. I don't know. I'm so bad. Uh, so, you know, should they do it? Should they not? Uh, this is the beauty of our country that we have the freedom uh, to be able to do according to our conscience. Now, we need to be clear, though, that we're not doing it because of who, like, um, because of an individual. So I, I actually know the, the baker and have met the baker in Colorado who's, who's, who was sued. He won that case. Do you, you guys know that he's being sued again? Which is, yeah, awful. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's so intentional. But um, for him, he serves gay people all the time. You can come in my store and buy anything, you know, uh, cupcakes, cookies, whatever, a, a regular, just a cake. But if you, but, and he says, but if you want me to make a special cake, and if you want me to put a message on that cake that is against my faith, I can't be compelled or forced to do that. And, and he's consistent. I mean, so he says, I don't not do something because of, you know, who they are. You know, of course, I don't believe that sexuality is who we are, but they are, but, you know, an individual. If a gay couple comes in, I will serve them. But if they want me to do something special and custom, uh, he even says if, if they, uh, he has refused um, Halloween cakes. He has refused other type of cakes that, that had bad message that he did not agree with. That's the beauty of our country. And I don't want that to be taken away. So that is one thing that I definitely will fight for. You know, you said about the government. Should we fight? Yes. I think that gay rights and religious freedom are on this collision course. And I think it's going to be, we, you know, we have to decide, praise God, that, you know, we have some, I think, you know, the, the courts are heading in a better direction now. But, um, so I, but I, I think that we should have that freedom. Uh, maybe a Christian baker will say, I will. They should have that right if they want. If they prayed about it and, they, and maybe they use that opportunity to then make, maybe get to know the couple better and share the gospel with them, who knows? But if someone feels I'm compelled that I can't, they should have that right not to do it. Because this is where, for example, Europe has already had. They say they might protect um, worship, religious worship, but they won't protect there's no religious freedom. What's the difference? And it's subtle. If you, if you heard um, some, like, the, the former administration and, and others that were running uh, in, along with that, um, they said that they will fight for, um, to protect the freedom of worship. Actually, uh, Hillary herself, she said, I will protect the freedom of worship. And we were like, oh, that's good. But you know what that means? Freedom of worship only means at 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday or whatever, like 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. Is that right? Is that the same? <laughs> I forget. What's the services here? 9 and 10.45. At 9 o'clock and 10.45, you know, till whatever, 12.15, that time is protected by the government only. 
Anything outside of that? No protection. So going out on the street and, and, and you know, passing out tracks, whatever, that's not, that won't be protected. Your business, that won't be protected. That's why. No. Here in the U.S., we have the most broadest protection for religion, the practice of that, not just in this worship house, not just in the mosques, not just in the temples, but in our, that's why I will also fight for a Muslim woman to be able to wear her hijab because it affects, you know, our religion is not just what we do on Sunday or, or you know, for uh, the Muslims on Friday or uh, the Jews on, on, their sab- on the Sabbath, Saturday, but it's holistic. It's all, it's all life. So I do believe that that business is not just a business, but it's made up of people who own that business. And so I do believe that we all should, you know, have that right and should protect that right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the question, um, why is it that people in the world seem to make, you know, this, this is who they are, their identity, and even why do Christians then say that I'm a gay celibate Christian um, and why this is such a part? So if you look at the history um, where there, before there was no term, and, and I talk about this in, in one of my first chapters about this progression, how this came about, there was no term for homosexual, heterosexual before the mid-1800s. This word homosexual, heterosexual was, in a sense, created by German psychologists uh, or German psychiatrists. Um, And what happened, so this is also Freud. He kind of popularized it. And what happened when they did that was they took what we just normally would kind of use other terminology to kind of describe what a person feels or their attractions or maybe the behavior. And what they did is then they created this new category of personhood, homosexual heterosexual. So not only now are we defined by race, by um, male, female, gender, sex, now we're also defined by our sexuality, a new category of personhood. And so this has been going on for many, many years, decades, century, uh, that it's been ingrained into our minds that this is who you are. So for, and, and that's like you said, it's even among Christians, we can't separate uh, that. And, and it's getting more and more and more, you know, among our youth. That's their vocabulary. How do you identify? Like even they, they will even talk about that in classes. So, you know, where, where are you on this spectrum? So it's not only now just this binary of between gay or straight or male and female. They now have this spectrum. You know, where did this spectrum come from? Well, Another brilliant uh, psychologist, uh, Kinsey from Indiana, the Midwest, uh, Indiana University, another stellar conservative school um, where they have the Institute for Sexual, I don't know, something or other, you know, where it's been proven that Kinsey was a pedophile, um, but and yet they still lift up his research, you know, so that we're on the spectrum, you know, it's not just gay straight, but there's like, we're somewhere in between here, which, I mean, just from a 
you know, it, it, yes, people can be somewhere around there, but it's not that, like, we've now created, like, personhood, like who we are, like we're somewhere in the spectrum. I mean, yes, our desires can be all over that spectrum, you know what I mean? Not, most people can, are probably more on one end of the spectrum, you know, with, with just experiencing, but to me, that spectrum, that spectrum uh, more accurately describes our experiences, our attractions, our desires, but not who we are. But, but it has been ingrained in our culture for that long. And I think part of it is also looking at the philosophies that were kind of growing in the mid-1800s. So in the mid-1800s, we were kind of growing out of this industrialization and sort of growing into what we would call the Romantic period. And a lot of um, art and music came out of the Romantic period. Um, and what's known as the Romantic period is... Um, all about emotion. So when you hear about like romantic classical music, it's very, uh, I mean, it's, I, I love classical music. Um, and you listen to it and it's just Mendelssohn and Chopin and Mozart. I mean, it's just, you listen to it and it's just like you weep sometimes because it's very emotional. So what people wanted to do was connect back to their emotions and their feelings and their desires. And that is who you are because of course they're rejecting that God created us and there's this purpose. So therefore, guess what? I mean, they go, went through his mind. They're like, man, there's no God, so what do you do? So you, you have to create your own identity and purpose, and a lot of that then is geared to kind of what we feel and do. So it kind of then sort of logically just progressed and kind of fit right in to what was go on, going on into the, during this, that time period. So that is what it is. Um, but you're right. I mean, the gay, even the gay Christian celibate movement um, I don't think what they have is right, and, and it's, you should not define, because, I mean, think about this. These, these people, it sounds like you're, you're familiar with this. They would say that they're gay and Christian, but then they know, oh, if I say I'm gay and Christian, that can be kind of confusing, so I have to say I'm gay celibate Christian. I mean, just the fact that you have to use a modifier to, to, use, to modify another modifier to modify that noun tells you that maybe you shouldn't use those two modifiers. <laughs> you know, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yes, I have sinful temptations, but... So do all Christians, so do all human beings. I mean, and you don't have to, like, say that. I mean, and, and I'm open. I, I do share that, but I, I, I don't think that we need to identify that in that way. I think that is an error. Again, they're, they're playing that with the wrong identity. Uh, yes, actually, I'll take her first and then you. Yes, I was waiting for that. I, I always get that. So the question was the gay wedding. You know, what's so um, maybe surprising, kind of sad is five years ago even, that was like maybe a few people had that question, but it's, I think, for many, you know, our young adults, our kids, this will be not just one thing that they'll have to deal with, you know, one time in their life, but it will be multiple times, I'm sure. Um, this, can, this is probably the hardest question that I have to answer, um, especially when it comes to your own relative, especially when it's your own son or daughter, because this can be a make-it-or-break-it decision. There's two big things that are at stake here or that are important here. One is, does your loved one know what you believe? Not just about biblical sexuality, but about God, about us, about the gospel. Do they know that? But the second thing is, do they know that we still love them? 
Because if you do not go, no, if you do not go, guess what? It's really clear what you believe, but it could be misunderstood that you love them. If you do go, it's clear you love them, but it be, could, could be misunderstood what you believe. I, I think, that, I mean, obviously, same-sex marriage is not God's will. But what about going? I kind of see this almost similar to what Paul talks about. Obviously, idolatry is a sin, but what about eating meat sacrificed to idols? Going to a gay wedding, is that right? Is that wrong? I think we really need to pray and fast according to God's, you know, what is God leading you to do? Because holding those two, if you go, do they, do they know what you believe? Do they also know you love them? If you pray and fast and God is telling you not to go, I really suggest don't tell them through a text or an email or a phone call. I would do your best to tell them face to face. Go out of your way. That might take flying to them and telling them face to face that you're so important to me that I'm not going to do this any other way. I would also show compassion and love to their partner too, right? They need to know Christ as well. Um, so the question here, praying fast, because uh, we often think, well, my presence is equated with, is equal to condoning. But I don't think that simply being at a wedding means that you approve. Take, for example, in-laws. <laughs> Their presence does not always mean approval. The couple definitely knows that they don't approve, but they're still there. My point only saying that a presence doesn't necessarily mean approval. But then I'm going to, see, I, I kind of play this devil's advocate back and forth to make things really complicated for you. Um, I also recognize the high importance of the imagery of a wedding. Genesis to Revelation. Genesis begins with a wedding. Genesis 2. That, that word about bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, is covenantal language. That is the first wedding, Adam and Eve. And guess who was presiding? God. Pretty cool. And then guess what happens in the end? Begins with a wedding, Revelation ends with a wedding. Christ and his bride, the church, with God presiding. So I'm not going to trivialize weddings. It's very significant in the grand scheme of the biblical narrative. So it will be personally hard for me to be present at a wedding, especially like if it's in a church, even a liberal church. I know that this is not pleasing to God, so I personally would have a hard time to go. However, I know, and I, I want to give parents that freedom to decide for themselves because it can be really, really make or break. So I know some parents who uh, did go or maybe they only went to the, they would not go to the ceremony, but maybe they would go to the reception. I mean, it's a free dinner, why not, right? They would go and they would, they would prepare themselves. They would not uh, participate in every element of the ceremony, I mean, of, of the reception. You know, maybe a toast, right? I mean, a toast is obviously assenting, approving, you know, that's toast to the couple. You know, I just, I personally wouldn't just not be part of that. Um, 
I wouldn't do it like mad and angry. I just wouldn't, wouldn't do that. Um, going through the line, congratulations, I wouldn't be able to say congratulations. I could say I love you. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your life. Um, get them two gifts instead of one gift, right? One gift would be for the couple. I would get them two gifts for the individual. See the difference between affirming the individual as opposed to the couple? Get them something Christian significant that can have, you know, lasting. Get them my book. You never know they could read it and God could use it, you know. <laughs> never know. Never know. Any other question? Yes, over here. What is the trend that I see now? So I see the world kind of moving on. I see like sexuality is done. Government has, you know, legalized same-sex marriage. We're on to now transgenderism, queer. I mean, the, uh, these kids now are, it is just like, like, I mean, I'm not kidding, infinite shades of gray for sexuality um, or or gender. This is the thing about transgenderism. We see this as confusion about male-female. It is. But you know what is really, really underlying that? Like, I always like, like to see, like, what is the real, real underlying issue. To me, the real underlying issue is not confusion, confusion about what's male or female. You know what is the real underlying issue? It's confusion about what is true. What is real? Because is truth defined by what I think? What I feel? Or is absolute truth defined by something else? This is something you can ask your friends who are transgender act activists. You know, you can ask them, right? You believe in science, right? Right? I mean, when you talk to unbelievers, they're like, we don't believe in religion. We believe in science. Great. Then why is it that one science trumps another? Maybe not use Trump because they won't like that. Why? <laughs> why? I always, I always follow that. Why does one science beat out another science? Why does psychology trump biology? Think about that. Right? Psychology is a science. There's also a, a it's, it's a bit more subjective. Of all the sciences there, biology is probably one of the most objective sciences out there. Right? I mean, it's you observe and you say. We aren't assigned gender at birth. How many of you guys heard that before? I'm like the whole thing. You're assigned and, and, it's, and it's like oppressive even that, out, you know, people are, doctors assign. You're not assigned. They just look and see and they record. <laughs> right? They're just reporting. I mean, it's, it's not that difficult. Yes, and yes, there's the reality of intersex, which, which used to be known as hermat, hermaphrodites, that's, that's not, but you know what the world says is, oh, because of intersex, therefore, we don't know if there's male or female. That's about equivalent to saying, well, there's Down syndrome, meaning extra chromosomes, so we don't know how many chromosomes ha humans have. No, a biological anomaly does not mean that there's no more binary system, that there's no category. 
Do you know what I mean? Like the world likes to look at these anom anomaly is like something that is not normal, an anomaly. Just because there is a biological anomaly doesn't mean that then there are no clear biological categories. So I think that's the kind of growing trend. Um, and obviously it's just more and more of this celebration of this moral view that is, if it feels good, then do it. As long as you're not hurting someone. That's kind of the standard. As long as you're not hurting someone. Kind of, for me, that wants me to just pray more for our world. Yep, yep, over here. Oh, yes. Yeah, I do. Um, and, you know, I've, and uh, yeah, and, and I'm, I know people who are, have it worse, you know, and, and like they had to completely get out of it. Their families were even put at risk. They would get their tires slashed. I mean, and, and um, my, my good, if you guys aren't familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, you should. She's phenomenal. You've probably heard her story before. She is a former lesbian uh, activist. She, she's brilliant because she, before she became a Christ, she was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University, so like a you know, top-tier uh, research school. And uh, her research doctoral doctorate was in queer and feminist studies. So she was a feminist, and she says she was a consistent feminist, which means she was a lesbian. And um, she, in her research, decided to study the religious right. And she thought, what is the most misogynist religious right group at that time? So this is back in the 90s. You guys remember Promise Keepers? So she's like, Promise Keepers, I'm going to study them. Well, if I'm going to study those crazy men, I better study the book that they read, the Bible. So she read it as an English professor, and God radically transformed her life. And now she is married to a pastor. She's a homeschooled mom. I mean, she went like totally 180. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, but so she, whenever she speaks, has to have an armed guard with her at all times. Um, praise the Lord. I don't, not yet maybe. Uh, but yeah, pray for me. I mean, I think it's, um, it's, it's just... It's easy to kind of just get mad, but it, it saddens me. Like, like for example, um, Amazon, right? I mean, that's my book just came out, and, you know, it's like that's mainly where people buy their books now, right? I mean, it's like no more the brick and mortar. I mean, I love being able to go to the brick and mortar, you know, and see the actual books, feel it, read it, uh, skim through it, whether I'm going to buy it. So Amazon now, is that, that's a thing. But a week after my book came out, like all these gay activists, like just started you know, and, and putting all these negative. So if anything, go to Amazon, leave a nice review, honest review. Um, but yeah, you'll see. So just, they don't like my message, you know. And so, you know, they'll, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate, but I, I'm not surprised because I was in their world and I would have done the same thing. But uh, yeah, so definitely um, I'd appreciate your prayers for me, but also just pray for the gay community. Um, that, you know, they know not what they do. Yes. So how would um, a people raised in the church and then now embrace homosexuality um, and try to defend it using God's word, how would I 
respond. What I see as the core issue is not their view on sexuality. The core issue, as almost it always is, is the authority of Scripture. Is God's word God's word? Or are there errors? Do we truly have a high view of Scripture, or are we going to look at Scripture and say, well, it's just contextual? Is God fully without error? Is it inerrant or not? If you look at all the mainline denominations that have fallen away on this issue of sexuality, if you go back further, decades ago, the ELCA, the PCUSA, the Anglican Church, or the Episcopal Church, their view of sexuality is the least of their problems. They don't hold to atonement. They don't hold to the exclusivity of Christ. They don't hold to um, miracles. I mean, go down the list. God can be a woman. God can, can be a rock, whatever. They're dealing with bigger problems than just this. So in the same way, Today, now you have this kind of uh, a, a growing movement among millennial evangelicals that now are embracing this, or now they're even trying to go like they call this third way, which is even now churches. So I don't think that's maybe here in Wisconsin yet, but go out to the crazy West or, you know, New England, you will see a lot of these kind of new third wave. So they, they, they aren't the mainline denominations, but these are people that are like, oh yeah, I'm evangelical, maybe more progressive evangelical. Uh, which, by the way, progressive, and not to get into the political meaning of that term, but progressive when it comes to sexuality, if you think about it, it's not historically accurate. Progressive means moving forward, not going back, right? That's progressive. But if you look and go back hundreds, thousands of years to the early church, you see that the context in which they lived, the Greco-Roman world, homosexuality was very normal. If you go back even more several hundred years to the ancient Near Eastern world, all the pagan nations around Israel at that time, homosexuality was normal. So when people say this is progressive, you just remind them about history and say that's not very progressive, actually. That's regressive. So these progressive Christians, evangelical Christians, you know, say, well, we just don't know about the Bible. So I think the most loving thing is just to be honest and say, you know, we don't really know and then kind of move forward. And then as we know, then we can kind of then decide. And I said, guess what? History always repeats itself. That's exactly the same thing as the mainline denominations. Anytime that we say, well, like, we just don't know, I've never seen it kind of come back around and say, no, this is God's way. Um, so... What, what you find is it's a low view of Scripture, that it's, they, they emphasize more upon extra-biblical context than actual the Bible interpreting the Bible. The key is reading the Bible canonically, meaning I'm going to read Leviticus in light of Genesis, in light of Romans, in light of Psalms, in light of Revelation. Why? And the only reason why is because I believe God's Word is God's Word. The liberal mainline denominations don't. They believe it's written by just different books, and there's just 66 disjuncted books, but we know, disjointed books, but we know 66 books. They may be separately, and they may be written by other uh, different human authors, but they're bound together by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we can say it's unified witness and be able to, that's, that's really the best guide to help us to come, come to that. But the reason why that we have these gay Christians that are affirming is because 
they might say they have a high view of Scripture, but by practice they don't, and they have a, a pretty low view of Scripture. And that then affects the gospel. So the gospel, guess what it becomes? This social gospel, right? Be good, do good. Christ then didn't need to die then for just being good. Christ died for a reason. Um, and so that's, that to me is the biggest problem because when you have a low view of Scripture, then you've just neutered the gospel. They want Christ without the cross because if you have that, then you have nothing. Anyone else? Did I see another hand? Yes, over here. The rest of the family, Christian, not Christian? Dad is Catholic. I find it hard to follow practically. Okay. And was, he, and was it because of timing that he's going to go or also because of conviction? Conviction, okay. So he, he would be more of a conservative, traditional Catholic. Mm-hmm. Mm. You were... Mm. Oh, good. Yeah. How old are your kids around? Like, Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say, um, so maybe, I, I think that this could be a good opportunity then to uh, talk to our kids. Because I know um, when we grew up, you know, when I was five and nine, you know, I don't think that would be necessarily a time then. I mean, 1975, you know, I was five years old. You know, I, that, that, w- that was not anything that the world was dealing with but we're, in 2019, a completely, completely different world. And um, I think maybe it could be a good opportunity to begin talking about sexuality in general. Um, I tell parents, uh, because for one thing, I would rather do it maybe a little bit earlier than later. Because as a parent, I want to be the first person to talk to my children about sex. I don't want the world to beat me to it. Um, and because of that, I don't think even that, that age t- frame is necessarily too early. Because pa- I know parents sometimes say, when is it too early? But I, I almost think the question is, when is it too late? Um, like by high school, man, I mean, if we haven't talked to them about sex and sexuality, that's... Um, the world definitely already has. So 
how do we do that in age-appropriate ways? Before we do talk to our kids about sex and sexuality, we need to already be talking to our kids about sin and the concept of sin. So not just the behavior sin, but also, um, and, and this could be helpful in my book, I have a whole chapter on sin, not just because when we think about sin, we just think about the behavior, actual sin. But to understand sin, there's more than that because we have to understand Adam and Eve and the consequence of that. So if, if, if you've you know, been a Christian for a while, you might have heard the term original sin. That's a very Catholic, you know, Catholics talk about that as well. So original sin, what does that mean? We think original sin, and I thought this too, original sin is Adam and Eve took the fruit and they ate of it. That's not actually original sin. Original sin is not the act, the sin of Adam and Eve. It's the consequence of their sin. The consequence of sin is multifaceted. First, death. Death came into the world. There was no death before. But also guilt. Because of that, we're actually all guilty. I know that seems really, really unfair, and people, that could be one of the things that they really, really resist. It's unfair. I did nothing, and I'm guilty because of what they did. You know, they took the, they took the stupid fruit and ate of it. You know, like Adam. It's the woman you gave me. <laughs> Don't you love that? I mean, it's like that God is, you know, best comp comedian. Um, and uh, so, but because of that, we're now all guilty. But if you think about that, being guilty for something that we didn't do is no less unfair than being righteous for something that we did, didn't do either. Think about that. Right? I mean, if we're like, oh, it's so unfair that, that I'm guilty because of what, what Adam did, well, then why are you not complaining that you're righteous because of what Christ did? You see, see what I mean? So, um, so that's originally our guilt, so we're, you know, because of that. But also, and that could be maybe a harder concept to explain to a five-year-old, but the fact that we are just wired different. We have a sin nature. So that's the other part of original sin, that it twisted our nature. It twisted that image of God. Our image of God is not lost, but so now we have this kind of, this bent toward doing things and, and having these desires. So those are things that we can, you know, explain, very abstract contests to kind of explain kind of more in simple ways for a child because then having that foundation, we then talk about grace. God's grace, right? That's everything, that, that he loves us even though we fail him. He loves us even though we're perfect. He loves you, Tommy, even though you, you know, are disobedient to me <laughs> or whatever it is, just, just like as a mom, right? I mean, I love you, you know, you just did something wrong, but I still love you. It has the same way that God does. And so when we talk about sin, the reality of sin and temptation, so with, with sinful nature comes temptation because sometimes as parents, we, we want to protect our kids from sin, you know, the outside world, but you know what we can't protect them from is this and this. Temptations come. And so sometimes we're trying to protect them from the world, but we're not protecting them from this. So when they are, Christian you know, kids growing up, when they are come up with that, they're like, I don't know what to do with that then. So telling them about sin and temptation and our sin nature, but then talking about God's grace. And when we have that, it's easy then to talk about sexuality. It's easy to talk about their aunt, you know, or whatever, that they're sinners just like we are. They are allowing and, and not come continuing to live in sin, whereas we might sin and say, that was wrong, God, forgive me. Where they're not there yet. So what do we do? We recognize that what they're doing is wrong, but we still show grace. So that's a great way, I think, to then help kids, young age, to then be able to 
begin dealing with these issues of sexuality, especially when it's in our family. So then that's what we say. So we can show grace, but know that that isn't pleasing to God, but God still loves them. Sure, and then grace. That's a great way to kind of introduce that to our kids um, at a young age. Yep. Another question. Yes, in the back. <laughs> Tell us about jail and prison. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, my parents, uh, you know, being Chinese and coming here, uh, they, they worked hard. Uh, they came here on a student visa and then applied to be citizens. And so, you know, it was they had a strong work ethic, and we knew nobody that was ever in trouble with the law. So, I mean, just, it was so, and it's so funny because my mom would say she had zero compassion for, you know, criminals until her son became one. <laughs> you know, it's funny how God, you know, does that to you. And um, so prison, um, so there's a difference between state prison and federal prison. So my mom, she just thought like, are you okay? You know, are you a danger? And I, I, I told my mom once, you know, toward the beginning of my prison sentence, I was like, Mom, don't worry. I'm in federal prison, not state prison. Federal prison is where all of the, like, the high-class criminals go. And, uh, you know, so, you know. <laughs> um, you know, the thing is, yes, um, there are times where it could have been dangerous. Uh, God's hand was with me. I think part of it was um, from an early time, I decided not, first of all, to associate with being identified as being gay. Um, I got involved with kind of the Christian group early on, and um, so there was kind of some protection there. Uh, but yeah, it was what I needed at that time, completely, completely. So even you parents, don't limit your prayers uh, don't limit what God can do. Even parents, you're like, you know, that's a scary prayer to prayer. Do whatever it takes. You know, sometimes they'll pray, do whatever it takes, except, right? Except, you know, don't let them be homeless. Except, don't let them go to jail. Except, that could be the very thing that will, God will use to bring them back. Um, and God used that for me. Mom, my mom did not think it would be pretty. She didn't know what it was, but she, did, she really prayed whatever. That's how desperate she, she was, whatever it takes. Um, but I, as crazy as this sounds, I look back upon that time in a positive way. <laughs> really, I do. I mean, it, was, it really was. It, it was kind of that innocent time, you know, where you're like, I was reading the Bible. I never, never, I read the Bible before, and I was reading I was like, this is really interesting. Like, this is explaining about me, about God, and, and so I was growing, and it was so easy. No bills, you know? I didn't have to cook, you know? And then it was just easy. I would just, like, I, I, they, I actually had a job, you know? It was just, it was very, because I had college education, I had, like, a nice job even, you know, where I, I was... Um, I, I sat behind a computer and took orders because uh, in prison, in federal prison, they have what they call federal prison industries. So um, a lot of the uniforms and actually even the street signs are all made in prison. 
Um, uh, so there's a lot of different things that they make. We also make furniture. Like we didn't do it in that prison, but the prison that I was at was like the customer service center place. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but it's not like anyone can call, but it's all federal agencies. So like, you know, and, and so they would, so that, you know, the federal, I don't know, like the HUD or um, what are all some other ones, you know, CIA or FBI, they would just call in and they would take the orders. And I would be like, well, you know, you know, thank you for calling, you know, federal bro. It was called Unicorn. Thank you for calling Unicorn. What, you know, how can I help you? And, and uh, so I would do that and put, punch in the, you know, because I could type and I could read. So, so it was, uh, I actually had a really, really nice job and, and they paid me like 17 cents an hour, which was amazing for, you know, prison because all I, that's all I needed. Uh, but it... it <laughs> It, it actually, you know, I look back and, you know, that is, is and people always ask, like, you guys make furniture, you know? And so it was, and one time we had friends over at my house and, and they were all asking me similar questions, like, you know, tell me more about prison. And, and I told them about that. And like, you know, you guys make furniture? Like, what type of furniture do you make? And my dad was, he's, my dad's really quick and he's really witty. He's like, what type of furniture do you make? And my dad said, you know, like chairs and stuff. And like, my dad was like, electric chairs. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I, I have a quite different perspective on prison and jail and, and even persecution. You know, people are like, you know, man, you know, we're, they're going to throw us in prison. And, you know, and I'm like, you know what, it ain't that bad, so I'm ready, you know. <laughs> That's going to come, and, you know, I get my meals cooked, and it's okay. So, yes, over here. Great question. So HIV, as you all know, there is no uh, scientific, scientists, there is yet no cure. And I don't think there will ever be a cure. Part of the reason is because the virus um, is, it's always changing. So there's many, 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 many different strains. And uh, so, you, you, you know, you might kind of figure this strain out, but then there's hundreds of other strains. And, uh, but God in his infinite wisdom has given physicians some you know, and scientists uh, to discover some fantastic new medication that has lowered um, side effects and is less toxic on the liver and the kidney because actually early on, AZT, that was, it, the, the medication was killing people. It was so toxic. Uh, so, you know, people think that I can, you know, live a, a fairly long period in life, you know, people are like, oh, you can live a normal life. I was like, I've never lived a normal life, so I don't know what that means. Um, but you know what's so cool is that, um, that the doctors say there is no cure. But I looked at God's word, and I know that God has said, by his stripes you are healed. So whether it's on this side of glory or that, I know that I have a healer and I have the real medication that's going to completely eradicate this. Um, so I don't know how many days I have, but I believe in a sovereign God. You know, it's the sovereignty of God that gets me through. Because I know before I came out of my mother's womb, he already knew the very nanosecond that I would leave this earth and be with him. And as I said, I had a lot of time in prison, so I thought about this a lot. Because if I really, really, really believe in the sovereignty of God, that he's in complete control, 
And if he already knows the very nanosecond, the very second that I will be with him, I also realize that as long as I'm in the will of God, up until that moment, I'm invincible. Think about that. I'm invincible. So it's not when I'm going to be with him, because I don't know that. It's not what might be doing that's dangerous, but am I living in the will of God? Because if I am, we're all invincible. Amen. Anyone else? Good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Just a reminder, tomorrow, 9 a.m., 1045, two services. They have a book table out there. I recommend that you get those. Uh, the, the, the two that he talked about tonight, Out of a Far Country, is um, the testimony, uh, the gospel, and ho- uh, holy sexuality and the gospel is really a wide, uh, covers a wide-ranging uh, number of topics in their identity, singleness, sanctification, all that is in there as well. I would encourage you to go buy those. Give them to friends, give them to family members, and uh, you'll be blessed by it. Thanks for coming tonight, and uh, have a great night. Dr. Gregory thank you very much for your ministry to us.